So I I don't know if you've heard this, Amy, but one of the things that staying inside does to me is my skin starts to really dry out and like crack up. Mm-hmm. In my case, it's particularly my feet. So my dad, very sweetly hearing about this, sent me like a whole packet of L'Occitane, um foot cream. Oh, the posh stuff. I know, I know. All the way from England. So I try this for the first time. I, I smear it on my feet and then I'm like, oh, I should I should put some socks on to like keep this from coming off. And then I'm like, so I take like two steps and then I'm like, oh, I see the problem here. And I was just leaving like these trails of sort of beautiful French cream all over the floor as I stepped. <laughs> but I couldn't do anything about it because I couldn't, any more steps would cause me to like just worsen the apartment. Um, so I had to call to Christina to kind of come and bring me socks and paper towels while I was stranded by my own foolish delight in French foot cream. How much cream did you put on that you were leaving snail trails? Oh, you have to put on a lot. Like I was uh, slapping this stuff on. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, FP's Deputy Editor. On this week's episode, we're going to look at how the pandemic and the ensuing financial crisis could shape young generations for decades to come. Later on, we'll hear from Ritwick Ghosh and Anne Bybee Finlay, who got married over Zoom. And we'll also be joined by Rainsford Staffer, a writer from Kentucky who is working on a book about the challenges of emerging adulthood in contemporary America. But first this. The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts. So Amy, when you did your degree, you studied the impact of sort of generational disaster, didn't you? I did. This this topic is actually my uh, nerdy guilty pleasure. Uh, this um, was the political science degree, the, the very real and meaningful subject. I don't know if this is going to help your mocking of me mm-hmm. or not. But no, this was my master's degree in Russian Central and East European Studies. And I was had always been really puzzled by um, when you speak to older generations in Central and Eastern Europe, you get it, what people have de- described as nostalgia for the communist era. People will talk about how there was, you know, a, a kind of a guaranteed minimum standard of living. And it wasn't glamorous, but you didn't have to worry so much about things like childcare, you know, finding a job, finding housing. These were things which the paternalistic communist state did more or less take care of for people. But then when you speak to younger generations, people around my age, they have not a single good word to say about the communist era. You know, they they will often compare the communist regimes to the Nazi regime. You know, there's no absolutely no love lost there. These are, of course, really broad brush characterizations, and there's a lot of nuance within all of those cohorts. But I was just really curious about how you get this kind of divergence within a single country. And so I focused on the Czech Republic and spoke to, I think, almost 40 people across the country of different age groups ranging and I think from 20 up to 72 it was oh it was the best summer of my life I traveled around the Czech Republic people welcomed me into their homes made me little open-faced sandwiches um you know beer homemade slivovice I was you know 
pleasantly merry by the end of the interviews. Um, <laughs> and what was interesting was it all seemed to hinge on how old you were and what stage of your life you were in at that moment that communism collapsed. So people who I spoke to who were young in 1989 during the Velvet Revolution, you know, kind of late teens, very early 20s, Basically, the collapse of communism was the best thing that could have ever happened to you. It was life-changing. You could travel. You could study what you want. There was no longer these limits of freedom of expression. You could listen to rock music until your ears bled. Um, but for older generations, the picture was a little bit more complicated. Nobody is fond for the communist era um, censorship, propaganda, you know, the restrictions on travel, food shortages. But that kind of sense that there was a social safety net is really lamented amongst older generations. And so if you were kind of in your 30s and you already had a job and a house and kids and those kind of worries that come with living an adult life, you know, it was a little bit more unsettling for people. And that imprinted on people and and it, it shaped their views on not only the collapse of communism, but how they view the whole era right up until this day, which kind of explains that uh, disparity I was talking about I at the mean, beginning. I mean, you get that very much in, in Russia itself, too. I'm thinking in particular of the Russian baby boomer generation. You know, the Soviet system that you retire, like, in your 50s or, or 60, um, a lot of the yeah. time. And so they were just coming to the point of retirement, and Soviet retirement was great. Like, you got almost all your the same salary, you had a really clear place in society but you also had a lot of freedom to like hang out with the kids and sort of go to the park and see your mates and so on and so that was just as they were coming to that period to kind of the best Mm -hmm. part of Soviet life the whole system collapsed and suddenly they were you know having to work three jobs or sell off the family possessions and um, one thing in particular was among men the whole sort of social role collapsed and their mortality rate for like Russian guys in their 50s and 60s just skyrocketed in the early 90s i mean just this thousands and thousands of people dying basically of sort of social despair yeah and there was a lost generation as well there was just a huge drop in birth rates in the 90s in -hmm. russia and i thought that the collapse of communism might be an interesting comparator to the pandemic because like the collapse of communism the pandemic has changed every aspect almost of the way we conduct our lives Um, and I think the best example is if you know if if a crisis can influence your experience of going to the shop to buy milk Mm -hmm. um, that's a pretty all-consuming crisis and the collapse of communism did that for people as has the pandemic so also just job prospects and the way that you I mean not just in terms of immediate employment but if you're somebody graduating now or in your sort of 20s your possibilities have suddenly so shrunk you know, they've been drastically reduced. So, I mean, I was thinking when I didn't have a job in my 20s, I just took off to China, like a lot of people of, you know, my sort of class and age range did. Um, did. If you, you know, if you were unemployed for a while, if it looked off, things were kind of boring at home, maybe you went to like Cambodia or this kind of thing. Mm. Um, and so even just the possibility of escape has been, you know, so sharply curtailed because even yeah. if stuff comes back, I don't think that kind of, international scope is going to return for years yeah i think where you are at certain stages in your life you know it really changes the way the pandemic is affecting you and i actually feel i have felt extraordinarily lucky personally 
that this has happened to me now because if this had happened almost any other year in my adult life when I was either an undergraduate in grad school on a fellowship mm-hmm. or freelancing or you know these kind of more precarious things mm-hmm. or things like graduate programs that have a definitive end date where you kind of drop off the cliff and have to look for a job I would just be racked with stress and fear and and I still am but it is of course tempered by being very very also, fortunate to still have a job and also I think you know if you're in your 20s or your early 30s a year or two years is just so much longer than it yes, is in yeah. your 40s I mean you know I'm 41 Amy I can blink and like a week goes by sometimes I have a nap and it's like 2020 suddenly and also you know like my career is moderately set I know what I'm doing mm-hmm. I know where I am yeah but if you're 25 yeah. you know not only is a year so much a bigger chunk of your whole career to date it's also that you just don't know what you're doing I mean this was a generation particularly in America that was already really screwed over by things like college debt and expectations I mean I don't mm. know if you've read um uh Malcolm Harris kids these days um I have not. Very good book on just how like screwed Generation Z is in terms of psychological stress, in terms of financial stress. I mean, even more than 10 years ago, even more than five years ago, it's something that has been getting worse at every moment up to this point already. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and now this. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this crisis is going to shape Gen Z for decades to come. Um, I mean, we've already seen that the Great Recession of 2008 um, had a profound impact on millennials and set their earnings back by years. And now that we're seeing unemployment at levels of the Great Depression, when you look back at that generation which was growing up in those years, they came to be known as the silent generation, those born between 1925 to 45. You know, when they reached adulthood, they didn't want to rock the boat because they had lived through so much turmoil you know, the Great Depression, mm. World War Two. Post- so they became that kind of 50s generation, that sort of conformist image in a lot of ways, I think, was driven by that. Yeah, and I think this would be my grandma's generation, and I see a lot of these characteristics in her. They're the It's the waste-not-want-not attitude. Mm. Um, and I'd always chalk that up to the rationing of World War Two. but... Oh, no, the poverty, the childhood, the levels of childhood poverty that we just can't imagine existing in the West, outside of really at the moment... Um, very marginal or, or in many cases minority communities you know I mean my mm-hmm. my father-in-law who um, is in his uh, 70s now but I mean he won't spend more than two dollars on you know like a microwave meal and he tips at you know 10% not out of un- generosity but out of sort of just frugality and instinct and, you know, he's very comfortably off man. He was a corporate lawyer. But these habits mm-hmm. that ingrain themselves in childhood uh, stick your whole life. Which makes you wonder about people who are children now and, you know, seeing their parents lose jobs and the the years-long consequences that that can have. I mean, like you said, when you're an adult, a few years is, is one thing. But if you're a young child right mm-hmm. now and your family income is slashed overnight... Mm-hmm. And all of the things that go with that, you know, the diseases of despair that we've seen, opioid crisis, you know, alcoholism, depression, um, and then, you know, the imprints that that has on, you know, this year's generation of children going forward for decades well, plus, is just... Plus the lack of in-person socialization. I mean, you're yeah. going to have kids who are out of, out of school for sort of six months, 12 months, who, who knows how long. I do think that's really hard. I mean, again... You know, never mind how, yeah, six months to a kid is an eternity. You remember how long a week was when you were 10? It was forever. 
So the pandemic has disrupted pretty much every life milestone that you can think of. Births, graduations, mm -hmm. funerals, you name it, are now either extremely limited or, in the best case, heavily reliant on the mm -hmm. internet. And we cover a lot of heavy stuff on this podcast, and so we thought we'd take a lighter note for a change. And just like water always finds a way, people are finding new and different ways to make these life milestones as special as they can. Um, Earlier this week, I spoke to Ritwick Ghosh and Anne Bybee Finley in New York City, who got married over Zoom earlier this month. So they got married over Zoom or the guests were there over Zoom? No, they were together in their oh. studio apartment in New York City, where they've been confined for many weeks. Um, and their guests were all on Zoom around the world. Oh. Um, I know. it was. They shared me a video after we spoke of the ceremony, and it is honestly the most heartwarming thing I have seen in this pandemic and I had to exp explain to my boyfriend why I was I was crying watching a video of strangers getting married on zoom <laughs> it was a very like only in a pandemic moment this wasn't like a, um, this wasn't like a hint to Ilan like you see how I, I'm here honey watching this video of <laughs> strangers getting married people who have pledged their lifelong commitment to each other in a ceremony which is possible even now even now <laughs> Well, I think we're now, we've made it however many weeks living in a studio together. So I think we're That's like basically married. married. Yeah, yeah. That's we're, like common yeah. law marriage. You know, we're done. I just don't get the ring. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I want to play you a clip from the ceremony, which I just think really encapsulated the beauty of it, but also this kind of looming specter still of, of the presence. During this pandemic, you have been my knight in shining armor. You have literally donned a face mask and kept us well stocked in food, coffee, and gummy bears, despite the unseen terrors surrounding our tiny studio castle. You have held me until I have fallen asleep as we listen to sirens. And give it a hug, Give it a hug. <laughs> Laptop is in the way. <laughs> you are such a mom. So good. <laughs> oh, that's anyway, sweet. I just, I just love that bit because they had this beautiful archway behind them, which um, Anne's mum organised uh, with some florists in New York City. Um, and Anne's holding up because I guess they don't have a printer. Like, I mean, I've been through oh, this. Uh, who, so she's holding up. Who has a print? Holding up. Who has a printer at home? I mean, like right. So she's holding up her vows in the laptop and then, oh, you, can, you know, she starts oh, to get emotional and you can hear, I, I assume it's it's their mothers weighing in over Zoom being like, give her a hug. Oh, bless. <laughs> anyway, so I guess I will now hand over to my conversation <laughs> earlier with um, Ritwick and his new bride, Anne. Well, we were engaged about two years ago and uh, our scheduled wedding was in the end of June this year in West Virginia. Um, as this crisis started unfolding, we decided that at the end of April, we'll make a call whether or not to go ahead with our West Virginia plan. And mm -hmm. by the time April came around, it was very much evident that this is there's no chance that a lot of us could gather together and probably not going all the way to the end of the year. So then we decided we need to do something. We need to get married. Um, yeah, so... It became clear Rowick's parents wouldn't be able to join us in the celebrations there in Delhi. And uh, that was really hard. But then 
Governor Cuomo, or Andrew, as my mother-in-law likes to call him, uh, <laughs> announced Project Cupid and said that we would be able to get married over the internet. And we thought, that's pretty perfect. We've been stuck in this room. We might as well get married in this room. This was a week before, or 10 days before we decided to go ahead with the Zoom wedding. Wow. And how do you plan a Zoom wedding? I mean, what kind of, like it sounds easy, but I, I guess it's probably not. There is a lot of planning. Basically, it's writing a movie, a script, uh, direction, cues, and then having just the most incredible friends who are able to step up and, and are generous with their time and uh, are really proficient at Zoom also. And so <laughs> um, training parents a little bit, practicing Zoom calls and uh, yeah, teaching the ins and outs of the Zoom functions. Not having to serve food at the wedding or plan for tables makes the RSVP a different story. So right. the sending people an invite became an opportunity to invite a host of other people, some of my family in India um, who would not have made it, some of the friends and family who we would not have invited otherwise or mm -hmm. may not have invited otherwise who could join us. So we just blasted the invite to <laughs> as many people through as many channels as we could. How many people did you end up having then? We had about 135 Zoom participants, and we estimate about 250 people. Our youngest guest was my cousin's baby uh, in North Carolina, who is two weeks old, and our Aww. oldest guest was... My sister-in-law's father in New Delhi, who is 94 years old. They would not have made it to the wedding in West Virginia. Yeah. We had a friend who was in the hospital at the time. She's a doctor in California. And so she was zooming in and she had her, her scrubs on and her face mask. And, and so that was just awesome to see her face pop up on the thumbnails and to say like, wow, I'm, a lot of people need these happy moments and are willing to make time for them. We uh, we had no intention for having like a four long Zoom affair, but uh, it was it was just wonderful and people, you know, people stayed and people gave all these toasts. My niece danced and threw flowers. Um, a friend of mine sang a beautiful Indian song. Uh, a friend of mine played the fiddle. So some Appalachian fiddle music. And how do you think you will feel years into the future looking back on, on your decision to do this unconventional wedding? Oh, I think we had the perfect wedding. It, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't imagine getting married to you any other way. It was, it was so special because it was really intimate in that it was just the two of us in this apartment and, you know, we could check in with each other and, you know, just just be with each other in the moment and not have to worry about 
a million other details I think that come up during the an, uh, real life wedding. Uh, and then also it was really intimate to see all the guests in these spaces where they also feel comfortable in their in their own homes. So we get um, a glimpse of, of people's lives in the pandemic. And and it really brought a lot of people joy. We we spoke afterwards with a lot of our guests and people were just so happy to have something to celebrate. Even sure. even if it was an abnormal wedding, it felt good to do something somewhat normal. And uh, people, I think, were quite primed for this sense of community and coming together. Um, being with her the whole time um, and during the wedding was also just beautiful. And post-wedding, I, I, I accept that both of us really like food and we like interacting with family and friends. That was, was not quite, could not quite be replaced. Um, mm-hmm. And we've made a lot of phone calls after that. We had a great feast in our little apartment. But we did go out. We stepped outside the apartment. It was snowing in New York. We went to the park and we clicked some photographs. And we had people, there were very few people in the park, but they would come to us. We were dressed up, so they would wish us. They would take some photographs for us. To the end that the police, the cops that were there, who were carefully watching over us, took some photographs for us and even oh. passed the photographs on to us, although we were quite nervous interacting with them. But, uh, you know, everybody's generosity really made this happen. So it's unforgettable. Yeah. That was Richwick Ghosh and Anne Bybee Finley speaking over Skype. Hey, listeners, it turns out that our collective action can stop more than just global pandemics. Discover reasons for hope on the climate crisis with Heat of the Moment, a new series from FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. So, James, where do you fall? Are you a millennial or are you Gen well, X or Z? X. Which is the older Z, one. Z, X is the older one, Amy. Z would be, right. I would be like 20. It was a, a fantastic piece in The Atlantic by Ed Young last month. And I, I don't know whether he coined it, but he used the phrase Gen C to describe, you know, babies being born oh, now. Yeah. It's like yeah, po- post-pandemic C world. C is definitely better than P. Yeah, and that was also a really weird thought. Like, I know that generations are supposed to be the the definition mm-hmm. of, like, time changing over and delineating between parents and their children, but it was really weird to think that if I have children that there will be this very clearly defined break point, mm-hmm. which there isn't so much between me and my parents. I mean, I guess, you know, the end of the Cold War was a huge deal, but it didn't change daily life in the UK in the way that the pandemic has and will. Well, one of the things I really saw in China was there's a huge gulf between the post-cultural revolution kids and their parents. Hmm. And it's the same kind of gulf that you get with immigrant parents in the West in that the parents experience such an utterly different world. So like the differences yeah. between you and your parents or your even your grandparents, you know, there's still a very strong continuity there in terms of... Yes, yeah. I mean, look... You know, I went to the same university as my father and grandfather. There's a clear kind of like lineage or line there. Mm, but, mm-hmm. you know, the Chinese kids who were born in the 1980s grew up in a world and had opportunities completely unlike their parents, you know, who grew up in like yeah. the countryside or were sent down to, you know, dig potatoes or whatever and whose childhoods were born in, in famine. And so I think with the Generation C in the West, we might see this kind of gulf for the first time. You know, this yeah. looming, vast gap of experience. 
We probably should also mention in this episode that the concept of generations as very clearly defined cohorts has also been criticized by scholars because it masks a whole world within age groups, you know, of disparities brought about by racism, by gender discrimination, discrimination on the basis of your sexual orientation, you name it. I mean, two people of the same age in the same country can have radically different experiences. And it's, you know, I think you see that most clearly with the um, with the issue of house ownership, you know, so there's the the common meme of people of my generation liking to dunk on the boomers for having bought their mm-hmm. houses for like 20 cents, um, you know, and, and they're now worth a million dollars or whatever. But that's, of course, a very different experience if you are talking about the boomer generation who are African-American and experienced Ew. bedlining. Um, so to unpack some of these questions about how the pandemic will affect younger generations in the United States, I spoke to Rainsford Staffer, a writer from Kentucky who is working on a book about the challenges of emerging adulthood in America. So Rainsford, you're working on a book called An Ordinary Age. What are you hearing from millennials about the impact that the Great Recession had on them? How has it shaped that cohort? What we're seeing is something that individuals have known and have been discussing all along in the context of their own everydays, which is that the economy Mm. and financial circumstances and our cultural and social situations are not siloed off from the rest of our lives. We're starting to see now, especially as millennials, some of whom are in their late 30s or even early 40s and are our parents Mm. or our caretakers for their parents, is that this perpetual state of financial crisis and financial anxiety has led to the delay of some of these milestones that we kind of think of as being traditional markers of adulthood. Things like deciding to have children in the first Mm. place or getting married, things like buying a home, planning for retirement. You know, 66% of millennials have nothing saved for retirement because it's a reality that almost seems impossible to comprehend when you're worried about day-to-day responsibilities like being a caretaker or paying your rent. Research that I keep coming back to shows that those who start their working lives, who are entering the workforce, maybe entering their first full-time jobs during a recession, do stand a better chance of getting trapped in what's called a downward-shifted economic trajectory, um, Mm. which means that in a lot of cases your earning potential is limited, um, there's this sense of having to catch up in a system that may not ever allow you to catch up, and when we couple that with things that we're seeing anyway, like increased debt, stagnant wages, increased cost of living, it creates this terrible downturn that right now stands to derail millennials again during a phase of life that's considered crucial for for earning potential and, and major life choices, but also Generation Z who are watching jobs that they'd planned to enter over the summer after graduating evaporate with no plan B. So you wrote an article about how devastating the current economic crisis could be for for millennials. And there was a quote in there, which I think, which really hit me, was somebody you interviewed said, even the responsible things were pipe dreams. And I think that's one of the most just awful things about especially this economic crisis that we're heading into, is that you can have done everything right. You know, you can have gone to college, you can have picked like the sensible major, um, whatever, you know, whatever that may be, tried to save a little bit as best you can, and you're still going to be dragged under from this crisis. 
You're exactly right. And I think that this is one of the things that stood out to me most over the course of reporting, not just the book, but also various pieces, is that most of the people I'm talking to who are Generation Zers or millennials from all different backgrounds and geographic locations and circumstances, most of these individuals are people who have tried very hard to do everything by the book and to be responsible and be self-sufficient and all of these sort of facets of independence that we kind of think of as being a functional young adult and a good young person. And it's one of the reasons that I think the conversations around millennials in particular that use terms like entitled and spoiled are just way of masking seriously unpacking systems and structures that aren't serving most people of all generations well. I mean, there have been a couple of surveys which have found that as many as 50% of millennials have a side hustle. So in addition to their day job, they're driving Uber, they're delivering for uh, Grubhub, they're walking dogs, selling artwork, things like that. You know, the people you're talking to who have side hustles, is this them just trying to get ahead? Or, you know, is this just economic precarity? Are they doing these side hustles just to survive? I think it's getting harder and harder to know the difference. I think at one point, what might have been, you know, feeling like you're setting yourself up for an opportunity to get ahead becomes such a part of your day-to-day existence and your anxiety and your awareness of your own circumstances, it suddenly feels very necessary. We know that around 62% of millennials were living paycheck to paycheck even before this pandemic. So this isn't even necessarily something that's new because something that keeps coming up in these conversations, even with individuals who are working stable jobs. They um, are in a factory with a union and enjoying that position, or they're in an office and they feel like there's some steadiness there. There's kind of Mm -hmm. this sensation of looking over your shoulder almost waiting for it to be you. We've seen, you know, friends and parents and colleagues be furloughed and laid off again and again and again, and it feels inevitable in a way. It's it's almost like there's a crisis creep, a guilt that you have a job as others get laid off, terror that even if you have a safe job, even if you're trying to save, it's only a matter of time until you don't. And all it takes is one bad medical crisis or one layoff Mm -hmm. or one thing you didn't seem coming to totally wipe out any savings that you managed to scrape together in the first place. And that's a terrible position to be in. I mean, do you see any cause for optimism in this? I mean, do you think that as millennials age and hopefully eventually end up in senior leadership positions in business or go into politics, do you think this will shape how they act? Will they craft a kinder world than the one that was before them? I don't see how, having lived through some of the things that these generations have lived through, that it couldn't shape um, our politics and, by extension, our policies in some ways. And I think that you can look at younger political leaders and already see kind of a shift in business as usual and things as normal, Mm. because I think, if, if anything, this pandemic has finally given us the opportunity to talk publicly about things that so many groups and so many individuals have been talking about for a long time, which is that our sense of normal is inherently broken. Mm. You know, there's data now that 52% of people under the age of 45 have lost a job or been furloughed 
or had hours reduced because of this pandemic compared with around 26% of people over 45. And I certainly, I don't think generational wars are productive because I think that what gets lost in, in conversation on that of who has it worse and who had a harder time is that these systems really aren't working that well for most of us. And what I'm hoping, especially with Generation Z, whose ideology does typically skew uh, more politically independent, they're less inclined to identify with a political party and are more drawn to policy that they think will positively impact their lives, Mm -hmm. and who have gotten to take sort of or have a more inclusive worldview where there's this idea of all of us working together to make Mm -hmm. things better for everybody. I am very hopeful that we're going to start seeing a turnaround. And I think the fact that we're even having these conversations, which I know so many people have been having for so long, it's certainly not a new thing, but I'm hoping that, that with increased dialogue around it, where we're talking openly about these struggles, there's going to provoke a change. That was Rainsford Staffer, a writer from Kentucky whose forthcoming book, An Ordinary Age, is out next spring. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Monday, so don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, head over to foreignpolicy.com for all the latest news and analysis on how the coronavirus is shaping the world as we know it. And if you have pandemic fatigue, and let's face it, nobody would blame you, we've got plenty of coverage of all the other things that are happening in the world as well. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by me and Darcy Palder and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands. And don't touch your face. <laughs>